All right, well, let's get going here today. First of all, big shout out to Gary last week. Thank you, Gary, so much for just leading the Bible study at nine o'clock and, uh, and for pinch hitting. So my, uh, my godson, I guess he isn't my godson because my brother said, no, not you. Um, my nephew got baptized at Assumption Catholic Church down in Chicago um, last Sunday. So it was kind of like this rushing around, getting in the car, getting down there. We got a chance to go be a part of that, at least, you know, after we were here earlier in the morning. But Gary, anyway, thank you. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, you get two rounds of applause here. You get the, the pre and the post. Thank you. You know, it, where I'd like to take you today, guys, is Isaiah chapter 40. If you'd open up to Isaiah chapter 40 with me. It's a pretty iconic chapter in its own right, and I do recommend that maybe at some point uh, today or this week you read the whole chapter. It's kind of like Romans 8. Out of this chapter, you'll find more nuggets of like, ooh, I know that verse. Ooh, I like that verse. But I want to focus in on the opening of this and, of course, use it again as a window for helping you understand the Old Testament prophets in the context of what was happening in the Middle East, in life, if you will, of the biblical writers and the people of Israel at this time. And here's what it says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for Yahweh. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind will see it. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? And then it goes on with this, this deeper teaching that, that will continue for about 30 verses about the majesty of God against the frailty of humanity, about the hope and strength we can find in God when our own hope, strength, and, and, and faith is lost. And it swells into this amazing ending where it simply says, and you might even have this like painted over a door somewhere, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. Verse 31, but those who hope in Yahweh will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Have you heard that one before? Great passage, isn't it? What I want to do is talk to you about some of the confusing shifts that are happening in Isaiah that you would never pick up on if someone didn't key you into it or you didn't read this stuff endlessly. We've already looked at Isaiah chapter 6. Um, Isaiah 1 through 39 actually is a unit. And Isaiah chapter 1 through 39 seems to operate in a different time and place than the back half of the book of Isaiah, which is chapter 40 through 66. Now, as I give you that opening salvo of comfort, comfort my people, says your God. I mean, they're, they're great words enough in their own right, isn't it? God is a comforter. God is one making the path straight. I mean, it, it, it kind of works just existentially. 
But what we want to do is take this and bring it down in the context of what Israel is facing, because I think when you understand that, it not only makes it clearer, it makes it far richer, even as you apply it to yourself today. So, intentionally no screen today. This is a bit of a review day um, with, with some of the things that we've been kicking around. Let's just see how we do it. And I, and I absolutely love this because I said it, and I already saw like this wave of anxiety cross a couple of faces and turn to their neighbor and just like this look of, okay, so here's what I want you to do to get started. Take 60 seconds at your table and share with each other what do you think the worst is, what do you think the worst that will happen to you will be if you get these answers wrong, okay? So go. What is the worst that's going to happen to you if review goes bad? Go, 60 seconds. All right, I'm curious for some of the answers. What is the worst that's going to happen? I heard that JD said he's going to have to watch a Cubs game if he gets it wrong. So, I mean, that's, that's getting pretty down there. What else do we got? What, what, what is the worst that's going to happen to you if you get review time wrong? You have to sit over in the corner with the dunce hat. All right. Did anyone up that? What did you have? What did you, you're not going to even go there. What you have? She's going to club us with her cast. Okay, you're going to get clubbed with a cast. How, how, how much worse can this get, right? Let me shift the question. What's the best thing that can happen? Right? If you get it wrong, yeah. Yeah. What's the best thing that can happen if you get it wrong? <laughs> yeah, right. You learn, right? You learn. You laugh. You have fun. I was actually challenged on this by a, uh, a leadership cons conference recently. We all tend to live under black clouds and always kind of hedge our bets, don't we? There's just kind of a natural tendency to always plan for the worst. There's, there's a book I actually have on my shelf. It's one of my favorites called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. And it's like, what happens if you fall into a lake and there's alligators in it? Like, what happens if your car goes careening off a cliff? What happens if you get abducted by aliens? It's things like that. It's absolutely fantastic advice. Um, I think there's a zombie apocalypse one in there as well. Regardless, isn't it fascinating to maybe shift the thinking? What is the best that can happen? What opportunity might God open up? What is the good that can come? What, 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 what possibility might be on the horizon if by stepping out, oh, this could happen? What I'm describing to you right now is a dichotomy you see in the prophet Isaiah. Between, between chapter 1 to 39 and chapter 40 to 66. I'm going to walk you through some of the review, and then what we're going to do is we're going to compare chapter 40 against chapter 6. Chapter 40 really defines what 40 through 66 is about, while chapter 6 really defines what chapter 1 through 39 is about. Let's kind of build the model again. We've been kicking around two key dates, the idea being that if you have riveted in your mind these two significant Old Testament dates, you'll be able to kind of navigate what, what the storyline of Old Testament history and certainly prophetic history is about. Who, who just wants to see the best that can happen by being bold and brazen and giving a guess on these dates? Give me one. 722 BC is a phenomenal date. It's not one of the two that I gave, but you're absolutely right. 722 would be like number three. All right? So look at that. What's the best that can happen? We get to grow our wealth beyond two to three, right? We, we've grown. And what happened in 722 BC? The ten tribes of Israel 
fell. Samaria, the capital of Israel, finally fell to the hands of the Assyrians. That was 722 BC. JD, I think you had another one. 587 BC, you remember this one? 587 BC, if not, say it with me. 587 BC, is that 528 BC? No, which is it? 587 BC. Do you know what happened in 528 BC? Oh, I don't know. I was just making up a number for compare. Okay. <laughs> 587 BC, Babylon destroys Jerusalem. So, to Ken's point earlier, Israel, the civil war nation to the north, has been destroyed in 722 already. But more significantly, especially for Isaiah, is 587 BC. This is when King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon surrounds and lays siege to the city of Jerusalem for the third time. Remember, three strikes and you're out? There have already been two attacks and two plunderings of Israel leading up to this. And it was in that time that Daniel got carried off. It's in that time that the prophet Ezekiel got carried off. But this is the final straw, 587 BC. Babylon comes in, surrounds Jerusalem, tears down the walls, burns down the temple, sends the people into exile, and all of those faith identifiers, remember like the Ark of the Covenant and the temple and the king and the land, and all of them are, are, are gone. And faith is lost or at least having to be completely redefined. That was the one. And then of course the other was 70 AD, which is when Rome destroyed Jerusalem again after it was rebuilt shortly after the time of Jesus, okay? Isaiah 1 through 39 is written in the context of that 722 BC date that Ken mentioned earlier. It's written in the context of Assyria coming and invading Israel and Jerusalem quaking in their boots about how far that power base would extend. It's a call to repentance, saying this is the hand of God who's actually working against you in judgment. And yet God wants you to repent. And if you do, there still may be, as Jeremiah would put it, a hope and a future. And that's what 1 to 39 is about. Chapter 40 is about a different time period. Chapter 40 is written after, or, 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 or shall I say this, is prophesied for a time after 587 BC. So everything that Isaiah writes about in 1 of 39, that's kind of like contemporary. It's in his lifetime or shortly thereafter. But 40 through 66 is looking ahead. And Isaiah is looking 150 years ahead, long after he's going to be dead, writing to a people then about what they're going to face and what that means in their faith in the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem. So far, so good? Here's what's confusing about that. Look at chapter 39 as it goes into 40 with me. Just stay at chapter 39, but chapter 36 to 39 in Isaiah serves as a unit. It's a narrative unit, which I like those because the poetry gets a little thick at times. And it's the reign of the king Hezekiah. You might remember that Isaiah wrote in the reign of four kings, Uzziah, also called Azariah, right? Jotham, Ahaz, and 
this guy Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was a good king. Really neat story, worth your time to see. But again, we're talking like 700s BC. Chapter 39, at that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of this illness and recovery that Hezekiah faced. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say? And where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace. You almost get this idea that he's gloating or so happy and proud of himself. There's nothing among my treasures I did not show them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah has a strange response. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, hey, at least it ain't happening in my lifetime. And then the very next verse, comfort, comfort my people. Now, if you're doing a casual read, you in no way would pick up that in between 39 verse 8 and 40 verse 1 is a 100-year, 150-year period of time. That Isaiah has died, that Hezekiah has died, that Jerusalem has fallen, that the people are in exile. Right? You would never pick up on this, but lodge that because it is so confusing. Otherwise, it's fascinating that Hezekiah actually reaches out to Babylon for help against the major enemy. Who were the two major power players in this prophetic period? Remember Assyria and Egypt, right? And Assyria is the threat to the north. Egypt is the threat to the south. So what does Hezekiah do? Well, he reaches out to Babylon, hoping that Babylon can help him against the threat of Assyria. Well, that one didn't turn out for him too well, did it? And think about how that happens in the nation of Babylon as they start to to come to ascendancy. Hey, do you remember that little podunk town called Jerusalem out west? You remember how everything we saw in that temple was coated in gold? Do you remember how they had wealth unimaginable before them? And they took us through when we got to see it. Remember how we got to take inventory of their arms? See the strength of their force, the equipment that they had, the strategic defense of the city? Hezekiah basically just laid it open before them, and memory like that doesn't die too quickly, so that when you come to power, hey, maybe it's worth coming down and invading and coming a little further. Isaiah's kind of setting you up. Now, what I'd like to do is kind of hold that intention over there and go again to chapter 6 with me. Because chapter 6 and 40 really, I think, parallel each other and can be read in tension. Don't lose chapter 40 personally. We're going to maybe do a little bit of flipping back and forth. But let's look over at chapter 6. And this is that, remember that, like, 
absolutely cool, but absolutely like horrible calling. Gary, you even mentioned this last week, if I remember correctly, where Isaiah is commissioned as a prophet, but it's the worst commissioning ever. He's brought up in the throne room of God. He sees Yahweh. He sees the seraphs. He sees basically the real temple because a temple is where God lives, right? And he sees the temple of heaven, the throne room of heaven, of which the temple on earth is like a, forgive me for dating myself, a carbon copy, right? It's, it's, it's like a cheap substitute and models a simulcast version, if you will. And Isaiah is seeing the glory of God and Isaiah is stricken with terror because whenever you stand before the living God, it's often being stricken by terror, all right? Because God is big and we're not. God's holy, we're not. I don't think I have to explain it. And if I do, spend a little more time, a little more closely in God's presence sometimes, see what happens, all right? Look at what Isaiah says in verse five. Woe to me, I'm ruined because I've seen God. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And it says, one of the seraphs, which is kind of like an angelic figure, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, it's touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away, your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, and check this out, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And I said, oh my gosh, how long, O oh Lord? Until the cities lie ruined when without inhabitant. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump and the land. Go and give my people this message. Here I am, God, send me. Make them hard of heart, make them calloused, make them dull. Good news or bad news? Yeah, I mean, you've got to think about that one. Then, man, I don't want to know what your good news looks like, all right? It, yeah, hard calling, message of dire warning, a message of a God who's absolutely fed up with his people, saying that this path we might as well just call it inevitable now. That no matter what I do and how many prophets I've sent you, you are hell-bent on this path and fine, I'm handing you over to it. You're, you're going to be dull, you're going to be dense, you're going to be thick, you're going to be hard of heart. You're going to go into exile, be taken far away. This really kind of defines what Isaiah 1 through 39 is about. It's this horrible, hard message of Isaiah bringing warning and last-ditch calls to repentance, hoping beyond hope that God might change his mind. And by the way, God does change his mind. You see this happen throughout the prophetic literature. Jonah is a great example. 
He raises up Jonah. Go to the people of Nineveh. Here is the message. In 40 days, the city will be destroyed. Okay, you see any ifs, ands, or buts in that? None. In 40 days, the city will be destroyed. Jonah tries to flee. God kind of works against him in the fling, so much so that like whales are swallowing him and stuff like that. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh. Remember, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, right? The big monster. He goes there. He preaches that according to the prophet Jonah, the king calls national repentance. It says everyone repents. It even says this. It even says the animals repent. And if you don't believe me, go and read it, and, and, and you'll see it for itself. And you know what God does? God repents. You ever think of God as repenting? Jonah does. And it says God repents. He changes his mind. He chooses not to carry through his sure and certain word of destruction. And the city is spared at least for a time until they go off the deep end again. Isaiah is in a very similar place. He's going out with this message, you're going to be destroyed, but yet calling the nations and calling the people to repentance, hoping beyond hope and some last-ditch effort they'll come in, but they don't. And in Isaiah 39, or at the end of it, everything <clears throat> laid waste. And it's into that that we come to Isaiah chapter 40. And look at how the message changes. Comfort. Comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her years of service, hard service, right, have been completed, that her sins have been atoned for. I think it says that she's paid double for her sins. Do you see how this stands in stark contrast to chapter 6? It's a very different message because the people are in a very different place. And I don't just mean like a hundred years later. I mean in their relationship to God. They're in a very different place. And one thing that you'll find through the prophets, and I would argue the entire Bible for that matter, is that God's word is relative. When God speaks, he speaks to the context that the people happen to be in. And this is what drives people nuts because they're like, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Because over here I read this passage, it seems to say this, and it seems to say it pretty absolutely, right? But then I go over here, and it seems to say something diametrically opposed to that. It's because when God speaks, he is speaking a word particularly in to the condition of where people are at. Strangely, this is actually the hermeneutic, which means the interpretive method that's supposed to define Lutheranism. It doesn't always in practice, but they'll, call, they'll talk about this thing called a law-gospel dichotomy. And basically it means this. When you preach and teach and when you talk to people about spiritual matters, how do you go about preaching or talking to them? Maybe put another word. What kind of word do you share? And you know what the answer to that question is? It depends where the people are at. It's relative to who they are. I'm not saying that the word of God is relative in some kind of existential kind of way, I'm saying that when God speaks, it's relative to the situation. Make sense? And so let me give you an example of how that plays out, at least historically, in Lutheran preaching, um, but really in Lutheran 
theology? Should you preach the good news of God's rescue and salvation to someone? How would you answer that? And You know I'm setting you up, right? But should you share the good news of God's salvation with someone? Yeah, of course we'd say, yes, of course you should, right? And yet all the Lutheran theologians would come back and say, not necessarily, that might be the worst thing you can do. Because if someone is, let me use theological terminology or biblical wording, if someone is hardened in their sin, hell-bent on a path of personal destruction, counter to God, in resistance to God, in ignoring God, going up to them and saying, you know what, God loves you so much, and he forgives you, and it's all going to be okay, is not only wrong, it actually can fuel that path of destruction more because it gives a false sense of security that it doesn't matter what I do. Right? Because God's going to forgive me anyway. You see how it kind of functions? Even though it's true, how it's wrong in its relative context. And so people like C.F.W. Walther and everyone who came after that, if you don't know those people, Google it. He looks kind of like a Muppet, actually, if you ever pull a picture up. Um, but that's another story. He does, doesn't he, Gary? He could be on the Muppets, yeah. Hair. It, he'd say, no, when someone's in that kind of context, you've got to Isaiah 6 them. When someone is hard of heart, committed on a path of destruction, someone is... is defying God and pursuing sin and reveling in it, no, the best thing you can do for that person in that place is warn them. Talk to them about the judgment of God. Talk to them about the consequences, and I mean the eternal consequences of where this path is taking them. Talk to them about the destruction that they're wreaking. It's all what they would call law. You bring the law of God against them going, God says this and there's consequences if you break the law of God. On the other hand, let's say you have someone who's just absolutely broken. Everything has been stripped. Everything has been taken away. They are reveling in the, not reveling, but they are mired in the filth of their own life course. Or maybe in the aftermath and aftershock of those who have projected nothing but filth upon them. They're feeling the full weight of sin. They know guilt. They're broken by it. They see the consequences that they've done and they regret it. And it haunts them at night. You go to a person like that and say, the Lord says thou shalt not and you are getting what you deserve. It is being poured upon you because of the sin of your... I mean, is it, is it true? Maybe. Is it the right word? No, because the point of the law of God is to shake you and wake you to the need of God and salvation in him and to seek him rather than this other path. It's to lead you to repentance, to use the biblical terminology, right? And so to come to someone who's in that kind of place and kind of give a message like that, it breaks them, right? Have you ever been in a place like that where you're, you're stuck in your guilt, you're stuck in your shame, and then someone just like, pours gasoline on the fire that's raging? No, no, no. What's the word then? Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Your sins have been paid for twice over. Make sense? Yeah, Aaron. Um, can you talk about Job 35 when Elijah is talking to Job then? 
Job 35, when Elihu is talking to, uh, to Job, what's the specific verse or context? Gotcha. So if you've never read the prophet Job, it's both awesome, but like needed a good editor. Uh, it just, it keeps kind of going around. At least, you know, if I'm being very crass, that's how I feel when I read Job, because it's an amazing book. But what it is, is there's a, a, a cosmic bet going on where, where the devil bets God that he can get Job to crack. And God says, I bet you can't. And the devil says, I bet you can. And then all of us on earth go, please don't bet with my soul. You, you, you know, but um, that, that's the context. And all this affliction comes upon Job. And three friends of Job come to Job. This is before Elhu, of course. And three friends of Job come to Job to try to console him in it. And they're trying to make sense of his suffering. You ever been in that kind of position where you're trying to make sense of someone's suffering? And they're going, Job, you had to have done something. And Job's like, I haven't. I lived righteously. I sought God. I did nothing to deserve this, which kind of gives like evangelicals hives because we live with this idea that, well, of course, I'm a sinner. I had That's not Job. Job's like, I am righteous before God, and the friends just won't have it. And then this young punk named, and it is Elihu, right? Am I saying it right? Eli, yeah, Elihu, okay. This young punk comes along and tries to like call out like the older crew, like the three friends, but then he gets it wrong too and kind of calls out Job as well. And that's when Job finally goes. So I don't think Elihu, he's kind of like dancing in that territory between the two, but I still don't think he gets it right because he's still on that wrong side, not seeing. You got it. You got it. So where this kind of culminates, and let me just bring this in, and then we'll get the final question, is if you look at Isaiah 40 again, from what I've told you, are the people of Israel in a hardened state or a broken state? Broken. Probably broken, right? You're in exile. Everything's been taken. The horror of your actions have come true upon you. Jerusalem is gone. The temple is no more. Broken state. And so now read, with knowing what you know, fresh eyes, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Do you see how personal it is? We wish it said, well, speak tenderly to Dave. Well, it kind of does by extension, but speak tenderly to Jerusalem because she's the one that suffered, right? Proclaim to her that this exile, this year, these years of hard service, it's done. It's done. Her sin has been paid for. The destruction that she's undergone, the judgment that she's undergone, justice has been served. It's done. In fact, double for all her sin. A voice calling in the desert, prepare a way for the Lord. What separates Babylon and Jerusalem? Remember the big, fat desert? Can you travel across a desert? Generally not. So now do you see the meaning of these words? In the desert, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley will be raised up. Every mountain and hill made, lo uh, made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places of plain and the glory of the Lord revealed. You don't have to go around anymore. Remember the map? You don't have to go around anymore. You, you don't have to feel stuck outside of Jerusalem anymore. You are not banished anymore. God's going to make a highway right through the wilderness. And he's going to make the traveling easy.
all right? And the glory of the Lord will be revealed there just like he was revealed in Egypt. There's always allusions back to that. And this is what Isaiah 40 to 66 is all about. And I encourage you, maybe skim it, read some favorite passages, and uh, navigate yourself through it a little bit. But keep that setting in mind, and all of Isaiah's words, I think, will make sense poetically rich, but at least contextually makes sense if you know the situation to which it's written in as opposed to 1 to 39. Good? Capiche? All right. For time's sake, I'm going to one-on-one with you. Guys, we're done for today. Um, God bless. We're going to pick up with church at about 10 a.m., grab some coffee, and uh, have a good morning.